0: First Corinthians chapter 7. Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her body but the husband does. And likewise, a husband does not have authority over his, his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may have or may give yourself to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because you lack self-control. But I say this as a, con- a concession, not, not as a commandment, For I wish that all men were even as I myself, but each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Now to the married I command, yet not I but the Lord." A wife is not to depart from her husband, but even if she does depart, either or let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and a husband is not to divorce his wife. But to the rest, I, not the Lord, saith, if any brother have a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, the children would be unclean, but now they are holy. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases. But God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? But as God has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, let him so walk. And so I ordain in all the churches, was anyone called while circumcised, let him not become uncircumcised. Was anyone called while uncircumcised, let him not, become, let him not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping, but keeping the commandments of God is what matters. Let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Do not be concerned about it. But if, but if you can be made free, rather use it. For he, he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's free man. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. You were brought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. Rather, let each one remain with God in what state in that state in which he was called. Now concerning virgins, I have commandment, I have no commandment from the Lord, yet I give judgment as one whom the Lord in his mercies has made trustworthy. I suppose therefore that this is good because of the present distress or distress. That it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not do not seek to be loosed. Are you loosed from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But even in, even if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Nevertheless, such will have trouble in the flesh, but I will spare you. But this I say, brethren, the time is short, so that from from now on even those who have wives should be as though they have not, those who weep as though they did not weep. Those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. Those who buy as though they did not possess. And those who use the world as not misusing it. For the form of this world is passing away. But I want you to be without care. He who is unmarried cares of the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he who is married cares about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. There is a difference between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord that she may be both that she may be holy both in body and in spirit but she who is married cares about the things of the world how she may please her husband and this i say for your own benefit not that i may put a leash on you but for what is proper and that you may serve the Lord without distraction but if any man thinks he is behaving improperly toward his virgin If she is past the flower of of youth, and thus it must be, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin. Let them marry. Nevertheless, he who stands steadfast in his heart, having no necessity, but has power over his own will, and has determined in his heart that he will keep his virgin virgin, does well. So then, he who gives her in marriage does well, but he who does not give her in marriage does better. A wife is bound by the law as long as her husband lives, but if her husband dies, she is at liberty to marry to whom or to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. But she is happier if she remains as she is, according to my judgment. And I think I also have the Spirit of God. You may be seated.
1: Good morning, brethren. I would like to go to the Lord in prayer before we start. Father, I thank you that that you are a God who speaks. You speak to us. You tell us your word. You have given your written word. When you speak, you accomplish much. You say that your word is living and active. Cutting and laying bare. Dividing between soul and spirit. As you know that the requirements are for today. In this message I pray that you would do that. For your glory. Also for the benefit of us that we may be encouraged and motivated to to a greater, more holy life and service to you. This is a difficult passage in many ways. This is something that we would easily recognize and acknowledge. But it is also your word. It is profitable. I pray that you would make it so this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. In Acts 18, we learn that Paul spent a year and a half in Corinth, leading many to faith in Christ and teaching them the Word of God. As a major trade city, Corinth was filled with sexual immorality, idolatry, and corrupt practices. This is the culture in which the church existed, and they were greatly affected by it. We see in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the first verse. That at some point the Corinthian church had written to Paul asking him questions about issues that were confusing or troubling them. And this letter, 1 Corinthians, is Paul's response. The letters to the church at Corinth, there were two, contain a surprising amount of correction relative to Paul's letters to other churches. It seems this church struggled with a wide variety of problems. Though Paul begins in chapter 1 with a typical greeting full of encouragement and hope as you usually find in his greetings. He does not begin to answer their questions right away. Neither does he begin with lofty theology. Rather he addresses some major sins in the church that were reported to him including some of his strongest admonitions and teachings addressing the immorality, divisions, and strife in the church. Throughout the letter, there is a discernible pattern in Paul's dealings with the problems in the church. He addresses the current sin problem, clearly names it. He establishes foundational truth that applies to that problem. And then he teaches them how to live in light of that truth. Just want to skim through the chapters up to chapter seven to set the stage. He begins the first sin problem of sectarianism. It's being heavily practiced in the church. Seems everyone wants to claim to be either of Paul, of Apollos, of Peter, or of Christ. And they're embracing wisdom of the world and not wisdom of God. He begins to cover this in through chapter 1 and chapter 2, and also makes it clear that such life, such practice is carnal, not spiritual. Moving into chapter 2, and also middle of chapter 3, he makes the point that Christ is not divided. We, the church members, are to be joined together in one body, and he exhorts them to be of the same mind and the same judgment. He says, I did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom in order that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. He points out that there is no other foundation than Christ. So he exhorts them and teaches them to build wisely with proper materials, building with eternity in mind. He then must address directly gross sexual immorality that's being tolerated in the church. He points out that they're puffed up instead of mourning that this would happen in the first place. Take strong action. Quote, deliver such a one to Satan. He did from a distance what they would not do about what's right in their midst. And he establishes the foundational truth that applies to this. Christ was our Passover sacrifice. Keep the the feast with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. We are in the world, but we're not to be of the world. And also, our bodies are members of Christ in the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are not our own. These are some of the major teaching points. The foundational truth for the teaching points. And then, he makes a very significant point there in chapter 5. Just bluntly, do not tolerate unrepentant sin. That's why he had to take that action because they were doing so. On a personal level, he's exhorting each one to flee sexual immorality and to glorify God in our body and spirit, which are God's. The, the main point there, ownership. We're not our own. In chapter 7, it mentions that again, twice in this letter up to this point you were bought with a price then he deals shortly with some offenses in the church that have been allowed to to fester brother wronging and cheating another brother and then a brother going to law against a brother before unbelievers in a civil court and not before the saints he points out that the saints will judge the world and angels how much more the things of this life And we are called to forgive one another. Why not rather accept being wronged? Accept it with forgiveness. We should then be willing to exercise judgment between brothers according to the will of God. And we should forgive one another. This is how we are to live, in the light of the truth that we are called to forgive one another. So, we want to note about these first problems. Apparently, neither of these three situations were in their letter to Paul. Because note that he starts out in chapter 7, having covered these things in the first six chapters, now concerning the things of which he wrote me. Before he dealt with their questions, he first had to deal with Grievous sin in the church that they had not reported. Someone else had sent him by word or letter. Presumably this letter would have come from the leadership of the church, from the church of Corinth. Aware of the problem and yet doing nothing about it. So this is the state of affairs in the church. Perhaps we ought not to wonder too much that the rest of the letter almost is one correction after another because sin spreads. Type of sin spreads. Also, sin spreads to other types because it's just, we give opportunity. Note that these first three problems are serious sins and practices that jeopardize the members of the church and expose the name of the Lord to the scorn and blasphemy of the world around. Yet Paul does not just bring up the sin and tell them what to do about it and move on. He patiently teaches them the word of God, exposing the sinful roots of the problem and laying the foundation of truth on which to build. Paul's desire is that they know the truth of the word of God and understand how to walk in that truth. And take note, even though... This church had such major problems. Clearly we could say that they were not on a solid foundation. They may have put their trust in Christ, but there was some serious deficiencies here. And Paul is addressing those patiently but firmly based on the teaching of the Word of God. So having dealt with the major sins that were reported to him, Paul then begins to address the issues that the church has asked him about. Chapter 7, and that is the context for today's text. As was mentioned earlier, the, the primary text is verses 29 through 35, and I'll explain why in a short while. But I do intend to look into most of the whole chapter, but it's going to be with a view toward what, the, what Paul intends to, the foundation of truth that he intends to lay. We're not going to dwell greatly on each individual thing that is said here other than for some illustration of the extent to which the church is a mess and must be dealt with. The chapter begins with, now concerning the things of which he wrote me. This is both an introduction to the second half of the letter where he begins to address the things that they've requested about but it's also an introduction to the first topic. Which I'll call the principles of marriage and marriage relationships. That's chapter 7. In the first several verses Paul lays out some general instructions and principles. let be 1 through 9. And then in verses 10 through 24 he gives more specific instructions to the married. Beginning with, now to the married I command, yet not I but the Lord. And ending that section with the principles in verses 17 through 24, that undergird the instructions in verses 10 through 16. Then in verses 25, through the remainder of the chapter, Paul gives specific instructions to the unmarried, beginning the section with Now Concerning Virgins, giving instructions in verse 25 through 28, and verses 36 through 40, with the undergirding principles in verses 29 to 35, which we're going to focus on today. Those verses, verses 29 through 35, are foundational principles that not only apply to these instructions to the unmarried, but are key to understanding the whole chapter. Since that would be covering married and unmarried, that pretty much covers everyone, doesn't it? Worthy of taking note, this is a foundational principle. It is essential to our lives in Christ to our being His disciples indeed. I have no doubt that we are in agreement that this passage is difficult. It's difficult for us to hear and to consider and to understand. There are several statements and instructions over which there has been misunderstanding and disagreement concerning their meaning and purpose over the course of church history. This message may not address those statements and instructions in a way that clears up every misunderstanding and disagreement. That is not the intent of this message. But I do hope and pray that the Holy Spirit will make clear today what it seems the Holy Spirit was and is still today, pointing to as the heart-level solution to these very troublesome issues. The church at Corinth, it seems, had extreme problems in the area of sexual immorality, with devastating effects on marriage relationships and those considering marriage. As we begin to look at these instructions and principles concerning marriage and marriage relationships given to the church, let us consider that though we may not be satisfied with these answers given, the Holy Spirit was satisfied. Satisfied that the Word of God has given would be able to illumine their and our path and cut with precision to divide between soul and spirit, laying bare the thoughts and intents of the heart of those who may hear. Them, and I pray us today. May God give us grace today to hear and respond, delighting in his will for us. Looking at verses 1 through 9 for a short while. Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, makes a most remarkable statement as he begins to answer their questions. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. Right from the ba- right off the bat, we that's a challenging statement. But it refers to entering into a marriage relationship, which can be seen from the immediate context. So we move on to verse 2 and as well as other examples of this word usage in scripture. And yet, immediately after this, in verse 2, Paul must turn around and give advice contrary to the answer he has just given because of the problems the Corinthian church was having with sexual immorality. Actually, the whole chapter is filled with examples of Paul giving advice in consideration of the church's current state of struggle while at the same time pointing to a better way of life in light of the foundational principles of the Word of God. In verses 3 through 5, Paul gives basic advice about the mutual roles of husband and wife within the marriage relationship, including a warning that was necessary because of their lack of self-control. You'll see this is a theme for the Corinthian church. Not only in this area, but as you read the rest of the letter, you'll see the same principle involved. But after having covered that in 3 through 5, the mutual roles of husband and wife, then in verse 6 Paul makes it very clear that his advice uh, given in uh, verse 2, to let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband, he makes clear it's not a commandment but rather a concession. Because of these problems. I want to just jump ahead for a second and And note in verse 26, the expression that's used there in in this another very difficult passage, Paul is having to deal with, he says, I suppose therefore that this is good because of the present distress. We don't know a whole lot about the present distress, but just keep that in mind that the Corinthian church is aware of it and they're writing, Paul asking for advice. Paul is clearly aware of it after dealing with what he did in the first six chapters. So this is making it very difficult to give instruction because Paul is trying to present both truth that applies in life as we walk with Christ but having to make concessions because things are in such an uproar. He goes on then in verses 7 through 8 to elaborate further on his initial statement not only speaking of remaining unmarried as good, but as something he even wishes for, believing it to be preferable. He points out that remaining single is a gift from God, as is marriage also. I may find that runs counter to the way we might like to think these days. But take note that this is the Word of God. As Paul says, he also thinks he has the Spirit of God. I believe so. I think we better take note. If we need to realign our concepts, let's be prepared to do so. But we also want to be careful in our understanding and, and to understand clearly the points that he is making. Because remember, much of this is a contrast between what Paul is putting forward to to understand some truths that will apply foundationally as we'll get to in verse 29 through 35 but also the concessions and also have the teaching concerning uh, sin or or sinful ideas so although we may tend to choke on that one in particular let us consider and acknowledge that this is indeed the word of god and is true and profitable it truly is and the sense in which it is both true and profitable will be seen in sharper focus later in the chapter One last look in this this section 1 through 9. In verse 9, Paul gives another point of advice in opposition to what he believes would be better. Another example of this. And again, it's because of a lack of self-control. He says, but if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn. And this after he has just stated that it would be better if they do not. So at this point, our view of marriage might well be shaken up and our hopes of marital bliss dashed if this chapter was all we had to go on. Thank God it's not. Listen to what the Apostle Peter has to say. There are several scriptures I think are worth looking at. We want to look at uh, some other passages on marriage. But first I want to, to 2 Peter chapter 3 and read verses 3 through 18. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless. Remember, that's what Christ is after with his church. Even also connected to Husbands loving their wives and having the same attitude, same purpose. Verse 15, And consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, like in 1 Corinthians 7, according to the wisdom given him, has written to you, and also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware, lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Uh, This very letter from Peter, also recall that it starts out, the first few verses... Uh-huh. beginning of verse 5, where he speaks of adding to your faith, virtue, adding to virtue, knowledge, to knowledge, self-control. He's very much interested in that we grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And, and there is a building, there's a growing and a building, one thing on another. And two of those things out of the first four is virtue and self-control, which the Corinthian church is greatly lacking in. So I just want to look at some other scriptures about marriage and husband-wife relationship just to make sure we don't get a twisted view that we might otherwise get. First of all, in 1 Timothy 4, the first five verses, we find that clearly Paul is for, forbi- uh, speaking of forbidding marriage and that is seen as being twisted I want to read that one. Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good. And nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God in prayer. So you see here Paul is sharply dealing with this this situation that he says will happen, does happen, even in his time. One of the things is forbidding in marriage. So obviously then that's not what he's talking about. He's not forbidding in marriage. I think we'll see he's not even trying to restrict in any way other than in the context of the mess that the Corinthian church is in. It's one of the ways in which we need to understand this chapter, chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians. Recall that in Ephesians 5, 22 to 33, wonderful text where Paul is giving instructions for wives uh, to love their husbands and, and uh, submit to them as they submit to Christ. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. A familiar verse, but I just want to refer to it quickly. Written by Paul. So he understands the, the importance of marriage relationship and husband's wife. Uh, you know, mutual submission. Love, respect, and caring for one another. Especially the husband is too is exhorted to care for his wife as Christ loves and cares for the church and seeks uh, a pure bride. In Hebrews 13, 4, the writer specifically says, marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled. The fornicators and adulterers God will judge. So, we could refer to, not reading it, but uh, Genesis two, when that that is quoted much in the New Testament. Uh, Proverbs eighteen, twenty-two: "He who finds a wife finds a good thing." Uh, Paul is not maligning or discouraging marriage, other than for a specific purpose that we want to get to with the Corinthian church. In Matthew nineteen, verses. 3 through 12. This is when some of the Jewish leaders came and asked Jesus a question, actually, were trying to trick him, back him into a corner, they thought, concerning marriage, concerning divorce, which they liked having that freedom. Jesus quoting from, from the Old Testament, from Genesis. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. He then points out that it was because of the the hardness of their hearts that Moses permitted divorce in that day. His disciples, though, respond to him, If such is the case of the man with his wife, it is better not to marry they were pretty shocked by what Jesus had just taught. But Jesus did not say to them, oh, no, you're mistaken. No, he said, all cannot accept this saying, but only those to whom it has been given. This is very consistent with Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians 7. So we need to view it and see this as the way Christ looks He does not look down on singleness, does not look down on marriage. He has a blessed purpose for both. We need to make sure that we align our understanding and our will with His. So from the scriptures, we can know that 1 Corinthians 7 is not teaching that marriage is wrong or to be lightly esteemed. It is, in fact, God's plan from the beginning and highly esteemed. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians 7 now. Look at the key passage. As I mentioned before, Paul gives specific instructions to the married in verses 10 through 24, then to the unmarried in verses 25 through 40, but now verses 29 through 35 in the midst of that latter section. But this I say, brethren, the time is short, so that from now on even those who have wives should be as though they had none, those who weep as though they did not weep, Those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. Those who buy as though they did not possess. And those who use this world as not misusing it. For the form of this world is passing away. But I want you to be without care. He who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he who is married cares about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. There is a difference between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord that she may be holy both in body and spirit, but she who is married cares about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. And this I say for your own profit, not that I may put a leash on you, but for what is proper, and that you may serve the Lord without distraction. Of this key passage, that is the key phrase. The purpose is that we may serve the Lord without distraction. Actually, the heart of what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 25 is taught by Jesus as an absolute necessity for being his disciple. We cannot be one without this foundational commitment. Turn to Luke 14, verses 25 through 33. Now great multitudes went with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost? Whether he has enough to finish it Whoever of you does not forsake all, all that he has cannot be my disciple. Jesus makes it abundantly clear what it costs to be his disciple. And it is calling us to consciously count the cost. That is to intentionally and fully accept the fact that discipleship requires no competing commitments of the heart. We're not confusing salvation. What is at the root of it. God is the initiator. As we wonderfully heard last week, it's about God's love for us, not our love for Him. But isn't this also the Word of God? This is the Word of from the mouth of the word. This is what he thinks it costs to be his disciple. Note that true counting the cost is not a mathematical comparison to determine whether following Jesus with such a commitment is worth it. Jesus' call to us is to believe and know that he is indeed the pearl of great value we must recognize that this truth requires that everything else, in other words, temporal things. When it says, so likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has, what, what do we have? It, whatever we have in our hands, and time, energy, all of that is temporal. So it's the temporal things that are to be placed in a lesser plane. It's not the same level of our love for God and must not be. We are called to forsake, to release hold of, to renounce possession of, personal possession of, and account as belonging not to us but to God. That's why we speak of it's not a possession, it's stewardship. And this is regarding everything of earth. That's the requirement. In order to follow Christ, whose life and purposes are eternal. True counting the cost also is not an attempt to imagine all the rival loves that we may possibly be required to surrender for the sake of Christ during the course of our lives. We don't know what a lot of them are. Rather, it is a relinquishing of ownership of everything we currently recognize as a competing love. If the Holy Spirit brings it to our attention, it must be laid down if we're holding on to something. Along with a firm commitment to surrender any competing love we encounter in the future. The Holy Spirit is faithful to teach us, to convict us of sin. Discounting the cost will include a commitment and a preparation that whatever happens in the future, it'll be the same answer. It's to be a settled recognition, and this is a work that God does in our hearts that, we, that by faith we see that He is the pearl of great price. And we give up all. We, in a sense, purchase the pearl by giving up all, forsaking all. We know for certain that Jesus is worth far more than any rival regardless of whom or what that rival might be. A wonderful text in Philippians 3 puts this to words. And let's have it ringing in our ears. Chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things lost now and in the future. All things. For the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ. Do you have that knowledge and that conviction, that awareness? If you do, that calls forth. A commitment. It's a response. It's the requirement. It's the cost of discipleship. Nothing less is acceptable to Jesus. Lest we be discouraged with this call for such a monumental commitment, let us remember that what is impossible with man is possible with God. Remember that line that came forth in a a similar situation when the rich man came. And the disciples were just incredulous as the rich man turned away. He would not pay the cost. He did not see Jesus as worth it all. But his disciples were gripped by this. Saying, who can be saved? Jesus' answer is, with God all things are possible. It's only by abiding in Christ that we can do anything. And in Christ we indeed can do all things. Including forsaking all to be his disciple. It would be good at this point to remember and consider last week's message brought by Shane Eisen. One of the main points of the message was that our lives must be built on God's love for us. That's the foundation. Not our love for God. Any more than this Response of commitment is what our salvation rests on, our life in God. No, it's it's just what's called for. If you see Christ as worth all, then nothing less can can uh, can be called for. God demonstrated His own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God so loved us lost and condemned sinners that He gave His only begotten Son to die on the cross in our place taking upon his own body the righteous wrath of God toward us for our sins. He was buried, but on the third day God raised him up from the dead and exalted him to his right hand as prince and savior to give repentance and forgiveness of sins. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? As Jim Elliot put it so well, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. It's a good purchase. But we need to see it as the contrast is greater than what we can imagine. We ought to count everything as dumb in comparison. And we are called to yield up our selfish control of that which is not ours anyway our own lives, our stewardship. And it's only temporary in order to serve our rightful Lord and Master who became our Savior. We need to have that commitment. Titus 2.14 He gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people. Zealous for good works. So we're called in Luke 14 then to consider his love for us and the surpassing greatness of knowing, loving, loving, In following him, that in comparison, nothing else matters. Everything that we do then should be done out of love for him who loved us first. Everything in this life should be regarded as a stewardship from God, and we should endeavor to make use of every resource God has granted to us to serve his purpose without allowing these resources to be a distraction or to compete with our love for God. This is the tie-in to 1 Corinthians 7. Though God's demand of us is all-encompassing, our Father knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. We can take comfort and also gain clarity concerning what God is looking for by considering the example of some of Jesus' first disciples They were standing there face to face when Jesus said those words. Don't you just imagine that hit them pretty hard? And sometimes differently, depending on the disciple. When Peter denied Christ, it could be rightly said that in those moments he loved his own life more than Christ. Was he not a disciple of Christ? It's an important consideration for expanding and bringing truth to the meaning of this commitment. We can look, and based on his response, as well his response to denying, as well as many preceding declarations, that his failure was not an absence of commitment, he was fully convinced that Jesus who he was, was who he claimed to be, and that he was worth more than anything else in his life. Remember in I think it was in God, John's gospel when a very difficult time Jesus said some very difficult words, and pretty much the throngs, thousands stopped following him. and he turned to his disciples and said... Will you leave also? It was Peter that spoke up as spokesman. Those statements blew them away too. They didn't know what to do with them. But his answer (laughs) where else do we go? Only you have the words of eternal life. Peter knew, he was committed, but he failed. He allowed fear to momentarily overcome his commitment. But he repented. So from his life, we can learn this is not, it's not an impossible task. We will sometimes fail, but let it not be that there is the basic failure to not properly appraise Christ. As worth worth everything. That's why Peter was in such a moment of just gripped by fear, and then having denied three times that he knew his Lord and Master, he returned. He repented. Judas, on the other hand, while engaged. In physically following him, including much sacrifice through the three years. He demonstrated a lack of having counted the cost. For him, there were other things, but money was clearly a competing love that he would not relinquish. You see that as he steals from the money bag. And in the end, his lack of true discipleship was made manifest. From these two examples, we can learn a lot. One thing we must learn Jesus is serious about the cost of discipleship, understanding, believing by faith, and committing, forsaking all. Something less than that. Jesus has said, is not acceptable. If you will be my disciple, this will be the commitment. Judas tested that and lost. Although Jesus states at the end of his teaching on the cost of discipleship that his call is to forsake all, he does not specify particular relational commitments that must not compete with our love for and commitment to him. And it is surely no coincidence I'm sorry, I, I read that wrong, and it's important. I want to get back to this. He specifies all at the end, but he, at the beginning he does specify some particular relational commitments that must not compete with our love for and commitment to him. It is surely no coincidence that these relationships are the ones that are naturally, in a human sense, most precious to us. He singles them out. Father, mother. Wife, children. Brothers, sisters. And yes, his own life. Jesus seems to be making sure that we are not fooled into thinking that our most precious relationships on earth are exempt from his call to forsake all. They are not. We're to forsake all For his sake, even the love and commitment between husband and wife, parents and children, caring for oneself, must not compete at all with our love and commitment to Christ. Competing commitments and discipleship are mutually exclusive. Understand this and reach for the grace to walk it out. And remember Peter's stumbling and what to do about it. So back to our key passage in 1 Corinthians 7. Can we see now that when Paul speaks in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 35 of serving the Lord without distraction, he is talking about having no competing relationships or things in this world that would keep us from being available and obedient servants. In fact, the Greek word for serve in verse 35, serving without distraction, it has the sense of sitting by Waiting upon, one to whom a person is lovingly devoted out of esteem. And the King James Version translation actually seems to to fit best here. It picks up somewhat more on that. That ye may attend upon the Lord without distraction. There's that waiting, that devotion, that availability. Understand now that the advice that Paul has been giving is with undistracted devotion and service to God in mind. And that includes, it must include, a settled commitment based on having counted the cost. Let's now consider the passage where Paul is giving advice to the unmarried. So just back up to verse 25. Now concerning virgins. Virgins, I have no commandment from the Lord, yet I give judgment as one whom the Lord in His mercy has made trustworthy. I suppose, therefore, that this is good because of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be loosed. Are you loosed from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But even if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Nevertheless, such will have trouble in the flesh, but I would spare you. So what is this present distress that Paul is referring to? We do not have the letter that the Corinthian church sent to Paul. The several have speculated that it may have been persecution, but the instructions in the rest of the letter do not seem consistent with a church under substantial persecution. They seem free to worship have public love feasts, they're being invited to the homes of unbelievers. I believe the present distress is the compounded and increased, increasing result, sinful result, of their lack of self-control, especially regarding sexual immorality. Recall that the major sin problems that Paul addressed earlier in the letter were reported to him by others not by their letter to him. It seems that most of the church, perhaps including the leadership, were unaware of the devastating impact of their toleration of sexual immorality within the church. They seemed not to be able to make the connection from the toleration of sin and the rampant problems they were experiencing, especially in regard to marriage. Given this present distress, Paul is advising them in verse 25 to 28, not to continue worsening the problem by trying to establish marriages without a proper foundation, specifically the foundation of counting the cost and therefore having a firm commitment based on sure faith that no relationships and no worldly goods would ever rival love for God and undistracted service. Remember in verse 35, this is what he's trying to secure them through his instruction undistracted service also in verses 36 through 40 he continues and he advises fathers to consider carefully the advisability of giving a daughter in marriage if the likely result is distraction from loving and serving God does that surprise us? does that mess with our minds? well not According to Jesus, and according to Paul here, this is the number one concern. Number one. To be blunt, marital bliss on this earth does not trump undistracted devotion to Christ. Let's look further about how this principle, as he applied it to them, applies to us. Remember his pattern. He addresses the current sin problem, he establishes foundational truth that applies to the problem, and then teaches them how to live in light of that truth. Do we understand that the foundational truth is that Christ is all in all and we must forsake all? So, then, how do we live in light of that truth? Let's consider some of that. The principle from 1 Corinthians 7 35 that one should seek to serve the Lord without distraction in every facet of life, including marriage, applies to us today as much as it did to the Corinthians, because according to Jesus, it is the necessary cost of discipleship. Is this foundational principle established in your life? Have you counted the cost? According to Jesus, in the way that he described, are you walking it out? Because we live in a fallen world, distraction is inevitable. You see some of this, Paul acknowledging this throughout this chapter. Even if we go into our room and shut the door for prayer, our own mind sometimes distracts us. Or am I the only one that that's ever happened with? I doubt it. Paul is teaching that even marriage, a God-ordained, honorable institution that serves a very important purpose, involves distraction from single-mindedly serving the Lord. He is acknowledging our human limitation in terms of caring more about the things of the world in order to please our spouse. So what are we to do? Obviously, the answer is not to stop all marriage. Paul explicitly states in this passage that one who marries is not sinning in doing so. And elsewhere, as we've looked at, he condemns teaching that forbids marriage. The point, again, is serving the Lord without distraction. Therefore, we must love self less. Doesn't the Lord, through His Holy Spirit, teach us? Isn't he constantly teaching us and bringing us through things to secure that undistracted devotion to him an availability to him to serve his will, whatever it may be. It's at a foundational level, a sacrificing of one's own life, one's own self-love for the sake of more love to Christ. This results in more treasure in heaven and less on earth. Recognize that we cannot give more in our own strength. It's impossible with man, but it is possible with God. We must rely on Him. It is a principle of the kingdom of God that He commands us to do what we cannot do in our own strength, to drive us to greater dependency upon Him. He's constantly doing this. See it as a blessing. We know and can recite the truth that we are in Christ And have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in that union with Christ, but are we consciously seeking to live each day by the power of His resurrected life? We must abide in Christ. Without Him, we can do nothing. We can recognize that yielding to God concerning a marriage relationship is an example of a sacrifice, a cost of following Jesus that we did not know about when we first began following Him. But if we have rightly counted the cost, We know that this too is worth the sacrifice. Is it? Is all worth the sacrifice? Remember Jesus' promise in Luke 18. I thank God. He does not leave us helpless. He teaches us. He shows us the way. We referred to this earlier, that when the the man comes to Jesus and wants to know what he can do to inherit eternal life, Jesus mentions some commandments. The man says, I've been keeping these all my life. Maybe a little lacking in his recognition there, but, but that's what he says. And Jesus says, you still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor. You will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. I ask you, what is the requirement for discipleship money, you know, selling all that we have or all our possessions? Is that the point? Or is the point that it's whatever you're hanging on to? Whatever you haven't recognized or haven't acknowledged, haven't thought, haven't counted the cost as to whether all means is worth all. That you give up all To gain Christ. And he's worth it. (laughs) By a long shot. Are you convinced? This man was not. He was standing before the son of God. The word who brought all things into existence. By the power of his spoken word. And he didn't recognize it. He loved his riches. It didn't matter what he was loving. Whatever he's loving. More than Jesus. Mean, meant he could not. He did not. He turned and walked away, but he could not be his disciple, according to Jesus. In verses 27 to 30, this is when his disciples being shocked by it, especially when he says, it's easier for, the, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And remember, that this rich man, it is an example According to Jesus in Luke 14, cost of discipleship, could not a man have loved his wife in such a way as to not recognize the supremacy of Christ? Yes, it is possible, or Jesus wouldn't have needed to say it. He covered all. gave examples of everything. This may take some thought. You may have to ponder this. Do so. It's part of counting the cost. In verse 27, Jesus says, the things that are impossible with men are impossible with God. Peter says, see, we have left all and followed you. Listen to what Jesus says. It's a bit challenging, but it's from the mouth of Christ. Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or parents or brothers or wife or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who shall not receive many times more in this present life, present time, and in the age you come, eternal life not stuff Jesus is not putting forth the prosperity gospel as we might call it these days he's talking about true riches the unsearchable riches of Christ in this life and abundantly in the next without restriction but abundantly now He's not talking about, you know, give up stuff and he'll give you back stuff. Well, he loves to bless his children, but we're to seek first the kingdom of God. He'll take care of those things. It's a matter of the heart. A matter of recognizing that Christ is worth all. The problem with much of the singleness in our society feel the need to put some words to this. Consider the way our society thinks and acts. The problem with this, and particularly of concern in the church, is the reason for singleness. Singleness of itself is not what 1 Corinthians 7 esteem, esteems. Recall that Paul is actually esteeming it and calling it better. The guy who gives his daughter in marriage, does well. But the one who does not does better. That'll mess with our minds. But it's God's word. What is that talking about? He, He in fact upholds singleness in this sense as of greater worth in a sense. It's because of the potential for undistracted devotion to Christ. This doesn't say that marriage is bad. No, the man does well. And in fact, Paul, as you, know, as you recall what was read here, it's uh, a start. That the, the, the marriage is, is held in high esteem and it's, it's not a bad thing, but it's, it's the comparison. We're right to repudiate singleness as the world looks at it. Because we see a comparison, a low view of marriage and family that comes with it. This is how the world treats it. It exists for the purpose of pursuing temporal, worldly things. Position, power, fame, money, pleasure. And as a, a single, living a single life, these things are easier, more abundant. So the purpose and the culture around us for singleness is wrong. But we're wrong, we are wrong, if we repudiate singleness itself. For God esteems it when it is entered into according to his guidance and will for the purpose of undistracted service to him. Paul acknowledges as Jesus acknowledged. Verse 7. For I wish that all men were even as myself. He was a single man and accomplished much for Christ. Because, not because he was single and could move around so much as his heart was undistracted. And it showed. (laughs) That's why. And that's why he's saying, I wish that all men were even as myself. Because he esteems Christ so highly that he wishes that everyone could, could be you know, completely devoted. But in fact, he does acknowledge, even from this, you, know, you might say for, for Paul, it's kind of a, a narrow view. I mean, he thinks very highly of this, but it's for a good reason. But he does acknowledge one has one gift, one has another. Jesus taught that as well. So, if we just consider, and we just step back and look across the world, we consider Genesis, chapter 2, what God created, the purpose for which he created man, woman, blessed them, blessed marriage, marriage is to be held in high esteem by all, marriage bed undefiled. This is a scripture, the, the teaching of scripture. And isn't it an obvious fact most, God would gift them with marriage. We can acknowledge that. It's normal. It's not, it's not a matter of low esteem. It's a matter of purpose and the unabstracted devotion to Christ. So in the context of marriage, with having counted the cost, live in such a way as to be as... Undistracted and available to God. Now, if that's going to work, then what's it going to take? Two. Living is one. Otherwise, there will be problems, like 1 Corinthians 7. So, I have some exhortations. Bear with me. To the unmarried men and women of any age, don't be focused on marriage as if it is the main goal for your life or as if it's the only way you can really serve God as you ought. If you are single today, then God calls you to be single and fully available to Him today and takes delight in your love and service today. Life doesn't start tomorrow. Young ladies, such a focus on future marriage, treating it as though you can't really serve God until that point, often renders you inactive to service to God as you wait for marriage to come to you, thinking that only then you will really be able to serve Him, but truly now. Now. Now is the best time to serve God according to his word. To wait is to waste precious time. A little line to maybe help you remember this. Years back there was a show on television, The Dating Game. Don't play The Dating Game. But don't play The Waiting Game either. Don't hide in the ground what the Lord has given you. Young men, that is a trap that you can fall into as well. It seems more common for young men to get caught up in the trappings of the world. At least it seems more outwardly visible, maybe. My brothers, the trappings of the world are traps of the enemy of your soul. Don't give your heart to that. This is, at root level, a matter of the heart. Don't allow competing loves of any type. Count the cost. And remember, in the lives of the disciples, that there was a building in that. God is, it's not like you look at your life and say, oh, I didn't count the cost when I first got started. All is not lost. Hear and heed the word of God today. Count the cost. If you look at your life honestly and find that you have not wrestled as Jacob wrestled and settled the issue once and for all on this one, on the commitment, on your counting Christ worth, the loss of everything else, if you haven't done that, today is the day. if you have not done that though you cannot be a disciple and you are therefore not ready for Christian marriage you will not only waste your own life if you went forward with that but you may hinder the walk of another and God will call you to account for this I'd like to try to paint a picture I, I I know this is heavy, but i but I want to also encourage you that with God all things are possible <clears throat> instead of waiting or pursuing with a vengeance as if that's what was called for the' The admonition to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and other things will be added. That's not... Marriage is not outside that. It is included. You don't need and you ought not to pursue that as an end in itself. Seek first the kingdom of God. Here's how it works. Just a simple illustration. If you turn your eyes upon Jesus... And you pursue him to the full. Because as a single, the Word of God tells you that you can. Totally undistracted. As you do that, and someone else does that, and you're looking that way, the Lord can bring you together. You will not have done it yourself. You won't be looking as if you had, thinking about as if you had. When going gets tough, you won't be wondering if you did. There's no downside, brothers and sisters. When we delight in Him, Scripture promises, He will give us the desires of our heart. Oh, that's a big key, though. Prerequisite, you delight in Him and His will. When you have then cast your lot totally with Christ, you make whatever his, his will is, whatever you find His will is, you make it yours. You're just following through on an initial counting the cost. And because if you're a born-again believer, then His grace is upon you. And the grace that saved you is the grace that keeps you and the grace that motivates you and the grace that strengthens you. His power accomplishes all that. And he will help you walk out that counting the cost commitment. Parents. Parents in particular of children of young men and young women. If the vision you are instilling in your children and perhaps I should not limit it to having already arrived at approximate that age but much earlier. If the vision you are instilling in your children is not the vision Jesus gives us in Luke 14 then I encourage you and exhort you to abandon your vision. You have the wrong one. Take on his Make sure you're walking it out yourself, modeling it, and diligently teach your children to forsake all for Christ. This is the only foundation able to support a Christian marriage that glorifies the Lord. Exhort, admonish, rebuke your children with all authority. Endeavor to present your children complete in Christ, just as Paul spoke of endeavoring to do that With everyone that his life touched. Because you will give an account for that. Now, married men and women, it's the same principle. Have you settled the issue of ownership? The issue of ownership? Have you forsaken all others in order to cleave to Christ? You cannot be his disciple, and you cannot fulfill God's purpose for your marriage without the foundation of forsaking all for Christ. It's a little example. You're familiar with the 1 Peter 3, 7 verse. Living with your wife in an understanding way. Living with your wife in an understanding way should not primarily be for the purpose of having a more contented wife and a happier home. That would be inserting your purpose ahead of Christ's. But rather, it's that your wife and you with her would be enabled to live lives more free from the cares of this temporal life and serve the Lord in a more undistracted way. Truly heirs, living as heirs together of the grace of life with minds set on things above. Colossians 3 If the Lord should call you to forsake worldly comforts at some point now or in the future that you may have gotten accustomed to using, are you ready in heart, having settled the value of Christ? Are you holding those things loosely? Are your eyes on him and your ears tuned to his voice? So that you would hear him if he is desiring to say, let loose of that, my child. Perhaps you find yourself struggling with one another. Get your eyes off one another and lift them to the one who loves you and died for you while you were yet sinners. He is worthy of you forsaking all and he demands it. He's also brought you together for his purpose. If you are married, he brought you together. Whatever mistakes you think you made, or you might imagine, we all make mistakes, yes. But if you are married, he has brought you together. You need to regard it as so and glorify God in your body. That's his command from, from 1 Corinthians 6. One of the summary statements Paul makes after teaching them through the horrible sins that they were involved in. So, please allow me to just—no, some of these things have been hard to hear, perhaps. But allow me to say, to speak from verse thirty-five chapter 7 of 1st Corinthians and I say this for our own profit not that I may put a leash on you or I but for what is proper that we may serve the Lord without distraction that is my purpose and my exhortation in this message Father, I thank you for your word that is alive and active. I thank you for your love for us. That you died for us while we were yet sinners. You, you went all the way to the cross. You humbled yourself even to the point of death on a cross. And therefore, you are highly exalted. Oh, Lord. You give each one listening the grace to see with eyes that you have opened the supremacy of Christ, the exaltation of Christ, and the value of Christ. and The grace to respond with the only response that is a worthy one and the response that you demand for your disciples. I thank you, Lord, that you give us the grace when we cry out to you, when we acknowledge our own destitute situation. We cannot in our own strength and power accomplish anything. We cannot in our own strength and power affirm and walk out a commitment to treat you as Lord. But we thank you that you delight to strengthen and do the impossible in our lives when we humble ourselves and submit ourselves to your Lordship. I thank you that your yoke is easy and your burden is light. You bless your word and give grace to the hearers. In Jesus' name I ask, amen.